Father, thank you that we can run to you as our Father. God, that you have shown us with such great audacity, your love, your compassion, and your mercy for each one of us. We pray, Father, as we spend some time in your word, that you would be the one to speak to us, that you would guide us, that your spirit would teach us, and that we would have ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick summary of the book of Matthew up to this point. No, I'm <laughs> Jesus was born, did a whole bunch of stuff, and we got to chapter 16. Sermon on the Mount was in there somewhere, and a few other things. In the first four verses, the Pharisees ask for a sign. And um, they're testing him and asking him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And so he rebukes them and calls them hypocrites, saying, you know what? You can, you can tell what the weather's going to be, but you can't see what's going on right in front of you, essentially. In verses 5 through 12, um, Jesus tells his disciples to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, they're freaking out because they forgot a loaf of bread. Um, and they think that's what he's talking about. Now, I, I'm just going to say this, because when you go on, he goes, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000, the seven loaves and the 4,000? How is it that you not understand? I'm not talking about bread. And then verse 12, they, they finally understood after he rebuked them. Now, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of times I like to give the disciples grace. I really don't have a choice. Um, because I see what they did, and I'm like, yep, you know, sometimes my heart, my heart can be hardened. Sometimes God says something to me that's very clear, and um, for some reason I'm not getting it, or I don't want to get it. I, I just think, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lord, we forgot a loaf of bread. I don't see how those two go together. This one, I'm thinking... I mean, even Jesus got upset with them. <laughs> then we get into verse 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, this is a very interesting question to consider. And this is what I've been pondering, um, especially in how it leads into the next thing. But who do people, in general, say that Jesus is? And, you know, you could probably go on a street corner somewhere. I guess, depending on where you were at, you might get different answers if you were on a street corner, say, in Oklahoma, as compared to a street corner in L.A. I, maybe. Maybe not. But what you might hear, he's a great moral teacher. Right? Was he a great moral teacher? Well, yeah, but that's not all he was. Oh, well, he was a prophet. Was he a prophet? Yeah, but that's not all he was. Right? They're all going to have the same answer. 
<laughs> right? Because they talked about Elijah or Jeremiah. Both of them were prophets. John the Baptist, Herod thought he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead because he had killed John. Then you get some people who say, oh, Jesus is a myth on par with, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Sorry if I spoiled that for anyone. Right? Oh, you know, people just made him up because they needed something to believe in. I've heard people say that. Or he was just some guy, and these guys followed him around, and they made up all these stories, right? So they acknowledged that Jesus existed, but they refused to acknowledge that anything beyond just a regular Joe Blow who was born a long time ago and died a long time ago, and that was that. And then they made up a bunch of stories and founded a religion on them. That's not accurate either. I love C.S. Lewis for so many reasons. I'm going to kind of tip my hand here, even though you all know what's coming. But he made um, the, the, the lunatic, liar, and lord argument. Are you familiar with that at all? So C.S. Lewis said, um, Jesus is one of three things. One, he was a liar. Right? Everything he said was a lie. Everything we read in the New Testament was a lie. And, you know, it was just a big, contrived thing that they made up this religion and, you know, they happened to preserve the writings somehow. And so we still know about it today. But all in all, he was, he was just a liar. The second argument is he's a lunatic because nobody could say these things, the things that Jesus says of himself, the things that Jesus taught, nobody could do that and believe they were telling the truth if they weren't actually those things unless they were insane. And in that argument, uh, C.S. Lewis says that they're they're a lunatic on par with the man who says he's a poached egg. That's how I always thought it was funny. Or he is Lord. Or he is everything that he said he is. He did everything that the Bible says he did. And he died and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming back. And everything we have in Scripture is absolutely true. And he finishes with the argument that he says you have to choose one. You can't simply say that he's a moral teacher or a prophet or anything like that. You either have to believe that he lied, that he was a lunatic, or you have to receive him as Lord. There is no in-between. And he, he closes it up with, Jesus did not leave that option to us. Well, we know he wasn't a liar. And we know he wasn't a lunatic, which only leaves one possibility. That is that Jesus is Lord. And so the world may have a hundred different opinions about Jesus, but those opinions mean absolutely nothing. I, was, um, I came across an article on the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. Um, I have their news app on my phone, and I came across an article where uh, a quote-unquote progressive church was marching in a gay pride parade to show their support for the LGBTQ 
plus exclamation point, you know, ampersand group of people. Now, I'm not saying we should hate those people. We should love those people. I'm saying we should share the gospel with them. I'm saying we should welcome them so we can love them and share the gospel with them. But we're never, ever going to tell them their sin is okay. I wouldn't tell anybody their sin is okay. But in this process, uh, somebody was talking to the pastor and said, you know what? If Jesus was here today, he'd march in the gate pride parade. And I said, wow, the place where you're going in hell is going to be real special because he blasphemed Jesus. He just straight up blasphemed our Lord. But that's what's happened. People have gotten away from the clear teaching of God's word. And so now they want to form a God in their own image. Right? So they love the God who's loving and gracious and merciful, which means there can't be a holy, righteous judgment side to him. So they dismiss that side and they, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He loves everybody. That's true. And because he loves everybody, everyone's going to heaven. That's not true. Oh, Jesus accepts everybody. Yes, he does. So I can do whatever I want and it's okay. No, it's not. He will accept everybody when they come with a broken and contrite heart, repenting of their sin. Who do people say that I am? And they gave their answers. And in verse 15, and I said this in my devotions, this is the most important question in anybody's life. Who do you say that I am? Because maybe somebody listening online or listening to this recording later um, heard all the stuff I just said and went, well, you know, I'm, I kind of think that Jesus would have marched in that gay pride parade. Okay, you're not going to find anything in Scripture, and you're trying to define him by your standards instead of letting him define himself to you. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, by the way, just in case anybody was wondering, is the only correct answer right this is not multiple choice where you can pick all that apply I always hated those right multiple choice give me one choice I want to fill in one bubble don't give me 15 choices and tell me to pick all that apply I disagree that's not who Jesus is well you know what yeah I believe he's the Christ the son of the living God but I also think he's okay with the fact that I'm living with my girlfriend and I smoke weed on the weekends. No, he's not. <laughs> you know, that's not how it works. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know from Scripture that as the anointed one of God, as the Messiah, the Savior, that he was born... We're about to celebrate that here in 25 days. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. Appeared to all of his disciples, giving them some parting instructions. 
And 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And one day he's coming back. Jesus answered, verse 17, and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that is so, so vital. When I was a young Christian, and, you know, I'm so glad, right? Have you seen that? There's like the meme floating around that I'm so glad social media didn't exist when I was young. I'm really glad social media didn't exist when I was a young Christian. I would have been that guy writing, you know, page-long arguments on Facebook and getting angry with people. I would have been that guy. I'm not now. It's pointless. But I used to get mad at people. I used to argue with people. I used to yell at people. All in my righteous indignation, right, quote marks, righteous indignation trying to get them to believe in Jesus Christ. Guess how many of them did? Not a one. Because here's the reality of what Jesus told us here and what we read about in multiple other places like 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That the things of the Spirit can only be revealed by the Spirit. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God the Father, via the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, helped Peter to blurt that sentence out. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't come up with that on his own. God had to show that to him. And for every single person who struggles to answer that question, who do I say that Jesus is? It is only the Holy Spirit who can truly answer that question. We can help. We can share scripture. We can pray for them. We can love them. We can serve them. We can explicitly share the gospel, which we should be doing, right? It gets to the point where they don't want to hear it. And we're warned not to cast our pearls before swine, as it were. But there gets that point where you use some discernment and back off, but you never stop praying. You never stop loving and serving. And if you have explicitly preached the gospel to them at some point, the rest isn't up to you. And so what do we pray? We pray that the Holy Spirit would get in there, get a hold of that heart, open those ears, Change that mind, because we can't do it. The truth of who Jesus is can only be revealed by the Spirit. Verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So this is the exciting part. To me, anyway. You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's the rock? There are many who believe that Peter is the rock that the church is built on. So you have all of Roman Catholicism that says Peter was the first pope, um, even though the papacy didn't really come into play till about 500 and 
70 years after this. Um, they say they can trace the lineage of the popes from Peter all the way down to the current pope. They cannot. Not, I mean, they could, they could start with Peter and write a bunch of names underneath him, but they can't do that. And I'll tell you what, Peter, I don't want the church built on Peter. That's not going to work. So how do we know that Peter is not the rock Jesus is speaking of? Well, for that, you've got to jump into the Greek a little bit. Now, here's the funny thing, is the, the Greek words are actually really close to each other. One is Petra, one is Petros. Um, and for some reason, I'm getting confused as to which one's which. But when he calls him Peter, it means a, a pebble. But a pebble is actually not the best translation. It actually means a piece, which is very interesting. Because the other word, the rock on which the church is built, is a mass of stone. Um, you know, you go down to Hartman Rocks. Big old rocks sticking out of the ground. That's a mass of stone. But then if you look around it, you will see little bits of that stone that have broken off all around it on the ground. That's Peter. That's the difference. So the rock that the church is built on is not Peter, but his declaration that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, as revealed by our Father from heaven. That's the rock on which the church is built. Jesus told us uh, back in Matthew chapter 7 that when we hear his words and do them, then we're building our life on the rock, the foundation, what he taught us, li listening to and obeying his word. And we know from John 1.1 1, 1 that he is that word. Jesus is the rock. Now this is what's interesting. You could, were you a geologist with the right equipment, go to Hartman Rocks or some other place where there's really big masses of stone and really little ones. And you could test them all. And you could find out which little ones belonged to which big ones. I don't know who would want to do that, but you could do that. We are the little stones. Literally, a chip off the old block. Because as Christians, we are being conformed into the image of Christ day by day, as long as we're following him and, and living, you know, walking in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, so on and so forth. I'm imagining that, um, not imagining, this is, this is a statement of pure fact, that there are some days I get a little more conformed than others to the image of Christ. I even think there are some days where I probably take a step or two the wrong direction, but ultimately, as Christians, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more and more we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what is being spoken of here. That Jesus is the rock. And we, because his Holy Spirit indwells us, because we believe in all that he's done for us, well, we're part of him. We're adopted as his children. While we're adopted as children of the Father, we are made co-heirs with Christ. He taught us in John chapter 15 the importance of abiding 
in him, literally living our whole life in him, because without him, we can do nothing. He's the rock, and we're part of him. How cool is that? So he goes on. Of course, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against the rock of the church. Um, unfortunately, throughout the last couple thousand years, uh, we've seen the gates of hell do some damage to the church. We've seen a lot of corruption and a lot of problems. But you want to know how that's true? We're still here. The church still exists. People are still getting saved. People are still following Jesus. So Satan can try. He's not going to get very far. He said, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys that let people into the kingdom of heaven? Is it Peter? Is it up to him who gets in? No. The keys to the kingdom of heaven is the truth of the gospel. We have that key. We can tell anybody who asks, well, how do I get to heaven? Well, let me tell you. I'm imagining if someone asks that question, the Holy Spirit's already at work. But we have those keys. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this one, uh, people have fun with this. And, um, you know, the reality is we have been given authority by Jesus Christ as his followers being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been given authority. And can we bind Satan in the name of Jesus? We can. Um, I would much rather he do it for me. That's why I always go back to Jude when Michael the archangel was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So if I ever pray something like that, I don't ever say, I rebuke you. Say, no, I ask God to do it for me because he said he would. But whatever we bind will be bound in heaven. As we preach the gospel, as we share the truth of God's word, as we witness to and shine as lights in this world, there are going to be times and places where we are called upon to bind the work of the enemy, especially in a specific person's life, maybe even casting out a demon. I don't want to do that. Three times in my life, I've come face to face with demon-possessed people. That was three times too many. I don't want to do it. Um, I will. I just don't want to do it. It's not, not pleasant at all. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Think about that one. What do we loose? We loose the power of God's spirit in people's lives as we pray for them, as we share with them, as we love them. And as God works in their hearts, they become loosed from all of those things which bind them. It's beautiful. We don't get to abuse that. But it's good to know. He commanded his disciples that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, we're not going to go too much farther, but I just want to take a moment to look at the next couple verses. He said, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine rebuking God to his face nonetheless? I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had times where I didn't understand what was going on and I asked God's questions. Not that I questioned him, but I asked him questions because I wanted to understand. He didn't and doesn't always answer them. Because he's allowed to know things that I'm not. That's just the way it goes. But could you imagine coming face to face with God and going, you know what, you're wrong. That's not going to happen. What kind of stupid statement was that? What are you talking about? This will never... Hence Jesus' reply. So he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now why is that so important? We don't know really what kind of time transpired between verse 20 and verse 21. It may have been that while you know he, this, ha this conversation happened in the verses 13 through 20, and as they were walking into the village or walking to the next place that Jesus wanted to minister on, just during that, you know, minutes later, he might have started telling them, hey, they're probably ready to hear this. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to reject me and they're going to kill me. But I'm going to come back three days later. Now, when Peter takes him aside and says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. See, I'm kind of an English nerd, as, as some of you know. In context, Peter's saying that Jesus will never rise from the dead. But we know that's not what Peter's saying, which means he didn't hear it. Every time Jesus prophesied his own death, he always prophesied his resurrection. He always put them together. Yes, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm coming back. And every time they get upset with him for prophesying his death and somehow miss that he said he was coming back three days later. And this is very much apparent when you get into the accounts in the various Gospels of his resurrection, right? Thomas was there when Jesus said this. And then when everybody else said, Jesus is alive, he goes, I'm not going to believe it till I touch him. The women come back from the tomb, and they tell all the other disciples and believers, we went to the tomb, we saw these angels, they said he's not here. Most of them did not believe the women. Peter and John ran to the tomb, saw that it was empty, and then it said they pondered these things in their hearts. What's to ponder? The tomb is empty. Because they wouldn't, they just didn't listen to the second part. They only heard what they wanted to hear. Which, I don't get it. I'd want to hear about the resurrection, I think. But all they heard is him saying he was going to die. They always missed the resurrection. So does get behind me, Satan, seem to be kind of a, a harsh thing to say to a man who maybe only a few minutes earlier made the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? I don't think it's harsh. Because ultimately, I kind of think that it was spiritual pride on Peter's part. I say that three times fast. Spiritual pride. 
that made him think he could rebuke God. That's right. I made the claim. I know who Jesus is. The Father, that's right, the Father showed that to me. So watch this, all you punks. I'm going to go tell him what's what. <laughs> no. So I think it was spiritual pride, which is very dangerous. All pride is dangerous. Something special about spiritual pride. It says, you're in offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now here's the deal. Jesus wasn't calling Peter Satan. Jesus recognized what Satan was doing in using Peter to try to distract him from the will of God. And I, I find that fascinating, how quickly that can happen. Because you could, five minutes ago, make an amazing declaration about who God is, about his goodness, about right, something that the Father has shown you through his word, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You're sharing this word of encouragement or knowledge or whatever with, with the people around you, and they're like, oh, wow, that's, that's just amazing. That's right. That is amazing, isn't it? And then five minutes later, someone says, you know what? You should take that word and, and you should tell people that that's more important than what the Bible says because clearly it is. No. That's Satan going, well, let's take something good and just see how bad we can make it. Right? You can, um, right, everyone has that, that testimony where you go to church and you have an amazing morning then you get in a fight with your spouse on the way home. <laughs> right? That's Satan. Because he doesn't want what you heard to sink in to become part of your daily walk. He doesn't want that. Part of the book is the offense. Um, you know, maybe the pastor says something or does something that bothers you, so then you just dismiss everything else. And that's Satan just kind of taking that knife and twisting it. And maybe, the, maybe the pastor really did something. So you should go talk to him. Get it dealt with. But if you don't, well, then it just turns into bitterness and anger and it just becomes a distraction. And then you don't listen, and then you don't grow, and Satan just laughs. Yeah, you're in church, but he doesn't care because you're being unfruitful. You're mindful of the things of God. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And I think that is one of Satan's favorite distractions from the truth that God reveals to us, is to get our minds on earthly things instead of him. Because if he can do that, right, maybe we're saved, maybe we go to church, maybe we serve in a ministry, but if he can get us distracted by the things of the world, we will never reach the potential that God has placed on us. We will never become what he's created us to be. Samson, I always go back to that. Ever since we studied Samson and his wasted potential, it's just constantly in my mind. What could Samson have been? But what was he distracted by? Money, anger, and lust. How many people does that take down today? And the last thing I'll say, because I could just keep going on for a long time, 
the last thing I'll say is sometimes Satan is obvious. You, you read something in Scripture, the Holy Spirit smacks you upside the head and said, that's for you, listen. Or maybe during a sermon or a book you're reading, and the voice of God is speaking to you through that. Right? And then Satan's real obvious, because sometimes he's, he's sly, sometimes he's not. I think he gets impatient. You don't have to listen to that. Oh, the Lord is calling me to a deeper holiness in him. Oh, you know what? You're fine the way you are. That can't be right. Right? Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes he just tries to distract us from what's great with what's good. And that is not so obvious. It really, really is. It's interesting. Because it's really easy to get distracted by the good. And Satan dangles that out there. I would say like a carrot, but carrots are gross. So he dangles that out there like a piece of cake. Like a funfetti cookie sitting in that tub like seven, eight feet away from me. Right? He dangles it out there. Oh, look, you could minister over here. You could be the pastor at this church. Or, or you could join this parachurch ministry. Or you could... Uh, well, that seems right. That seems good. Shouldn't I follow after that? But what if it's not God's will? What if God wants somebody else in that spot? And he's chosen you to go somewhere else. Or to do something else. Or whatever it might be. Then something good takes away from something great. And we need to be very careful with that. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. Thank you that you let us hear your voice. Father, that we can hear your voice through your word. God, we can be witness to your majesty in creation. We can silence ourselves your whisper to our hearts bring us wisdom, guidance, comfort or just reassure us that you're there thank you that we can hear your voice Father help us to be people who listen and Father I pray that we would not be distracted from what you have for us whether it's an obvious distraction or a subtle one let us keep our minds firmly fixed on you. Let us keep our hearts firmly fixed on you. You tell us to pay attention to our heart because it's from the heart springs the issues of life. Help us keep our hearts firmly fixed on you. I pray for the rest of our week, Father, that you would just glorify, be glorified in all that we do, that you would bless the things that we need to do in Jesus' name, amen.